Welcome to Question Period on this Sunday, March 5th. I'm Vashi Capellos. Today, will the feds answer calls for a public inquiry into foreign interference? I very much share the concerns uh, of Canadians around interference from, uh, from uh, the Chinese governments or other foreign governments. A new report, a new testimony confirm election meddling attempts from China in 2019 and 2021, but officials insist the integrity of those elections was never jeopardized. However, poll after poll shows a majority of Canadians think our democracy could be under threat. What are the feds prepared to do about it? Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Dominic Leblanc will be here in moments and I'll ask him. And we'll go one-on-one -on -one with Morris Rosenberg, the man behind the independent review of interference in the last election. Then, as Canadians worry about alleged Chinese interference, the U.S. gets tougher on China. From a political point of view here in the United States, uh, both parties uh, are now very hawkish uh, on China. From a potential TikTok ban to stern warnings about sending lethal aid to Russia, is the U.S. drawing a red line? We'll speak to former U.S. Secretary of Defense and CIA Director Leon Panetta about that in an exclusive Canadian interview. Plus, parting words. This place felt like a torture chamber. I will not miss the character assassination. BC MLA and British Columbia's first and only Indigenous female cabinet minister, Melanie Mark, is resigning following what she calls a challenging journey. We'll ask her about that decision just ahead. Let's start with new calls for the feds to hold a public inquiry into foreign election interference. On Thursday, opposition members on a parliamentary committee voted to do just that, but the motion is not binding on the government. And while intelligence and elections officials have repeated that the results of the last two elections were legitimate, they also concede there were attempts by foreign actors to interfere. There is a baseline amount of foreign interference going on every day in Canada that we need to be mindful of, but that I was not aware of any spike in foreign interference uh, during either the 2019 or 2021 election campaigns, and I stand by that. We have been clear that the principal threat to Canada comes from the People's Republic of China. But to be clear, the threat does not come from the Chinese people, but rather from the Chinese Communist Party and the government of China. Now, Beijing strongly denies all of that, but new polls show Canadians are not convinced. According to Nanos Research, 7 in 10 Canadians say Chinese government interference in our 2021 election is a major threat to our democracy. Meanwhile, an independent report released this week about the 2021 election also acknowledged interference but did conclude a panel designed to flag interference did not detect that it threatened Canada's ability to have free and fair elections. Morris Rosenberg is the man who wrote that report and he's here now. Hi, Mr. Rosenberg. Good to meet you and good to have you here in studio. Nice to be here, Vashi. I appreciate you making the time. I have a number of questions about uh, the report that, that you authored, but before I get to those, I, I wanted to start off on what has formed the substance of some of the criticism of that report and, and you yourself from the opposition. Uh, and it involves your time at the Trudeau Foundation. You headed up that foundation when, uh, during the time rather, that a Chinese businessman who has ties to China, the Chinese government rather, made a $200,000 donation. This week the foundation returned that donation. Uh, the leader of the Bloc Quebecois, for example, says because uh, of your work there, because of that involvement, uh, you yourself have a, a deficiency of credibility. How do you respond to that? So I'd say, first of all, I mean, I have a number of things to say about it. Um, first of all, uh, I'd say I have worked I had a 34-year career in government that was split between working for 
uh, liberal governments and conservative governments. Uh, I was a deputy minister for 17 years under first the liberals and then the conservatives. And when I left and joined the Trudeau Foundation, you have to understand the Trudeau Foundation is named after Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Um, it is an independent, nonpartisan body, and it's had um, on its board of directors and as part of its membership uh, people from all political stripes, liberals, NDP, conservatives. Now, the Globe and Mail uh, published a report this week that uh, a, a source from CISA says that there had been information that they had, there were conversations between a Chinese consular official and uh, one of these businessmen saying, and the Chinese consular official saying that he ought to donate to the Trudeau Foundation. I had never heard of that until this was I the first you read of it. First that I read of it. So we were never informed. If anybody did have any have any information that there was something untoward about this, I wasn't informed about it. The other thing I would say is that you have to look a little bit at the historical context. So put yourself back in 2015, 2016, when the Canadian attitude about the relationship with China was very different, very hopeful, and much more positive and trusting, I would say. And then if you fast forward to the last couple of years, there's been a kind of a steady deterioration in that relationship for a number of issues. So had we been there today, would the same thing have happened? I that's what I'm wondering. Yeah, yeah. Do you yeah. Now, sort of, with the information we have now and what's transpired in the years since, do you think you would have made a different no, decision? No, I, I think I would have made it. I think there would have been uh, a different decision made for sure. Just before I move on to the report, um, do, do you uh, do you understand? I guess the the criticism or the uh, I mean, the timing of this is all uh, it, it all bleeds together, right? Because yep. we you know uh, we were saying before the interview a month ago if this happened. Yeah. Uh, in this report, your report was released. It wouldn't be against the mm -hmm. backdrop of everything people right. have read in the Globe and Mail in the last two weeks. Do you understand how your credibility is called into question or the report's credibility based on the kinds of stuff people have been reading? Yeah, I, under, I understand, but I go back and, and reiterate again that um, the, you know, I worked for that foundation for four years. I worked there on the assumption that Although it was named for Pierre Elliott Trudeau, it's not part of the government. It is an independent, nonpartisan foundation. I have always conducted myself in a nonpartisan way, and that's how I conducted myself there. And then you're looking at a donation at that time for conferences. Uh, you know, not a, not a donation. You know, that on its face had anything to do with politics. Maybe we're, we were naive back then, but I think. Uh, and then when I was offered this contract by the Privy Council Office in the summer to look at one you know, particular and quite technical aspect of uh, uh, preparation for elections, I didn't think there was an issue. Let's get to what you were, what, what you were looking at there. Um, and and it, it is a very specific uh, review that you conducted, right? It was on the work of the panel that it essentially is supposed to tell Canadians hey, there is a problem with foreign interference or interference, period, and, and it's a problem because it's compromised the integrity of the election. They haven't done so because they didn't feel that was the case. Exactly. Uh, and you reiterated that's the conclusion they arrived at through your report. And yet, Canadians right now, overwhelmingly, two polls this week have shown us, including one done for CTV from, from Nanos Research, are really worried about what they're reading, despite the conclusion that that panel right. reached, it, which was, as I said, communicated through your report. Are, are you sympathetic to those worries right now? Uh, 
you know, given the information that's been in the media in the last couple of weeks, information that I wasn't privy to um, when I was doing my report, and I can't comment on the veracity of the information. It's leaked information. And uh, I don't know if we're ever going to get to the bottom of that. But I understand the concerns of Canadians. And I guess the irony is that um, one of the goals of foreign interference is to undermine the confidence of Canadians in our democratic institutions. And that seems to have succeeded. Uh, the confidence of Canadians in our democratic institutions to look at the Angus Reid poll, and you mentioned there's a Nanos poll out also that has somewhere between two-thirds and 70% of people worried about this, it raises an issue and the issue is going to have to be addressed in some way. And when you say in some way, uh, the, the government has pointed to mechanisms already in place as a means of doing that, uh, including the conclusions as, as telegraphed through, through your report that there, that there the integrity of the election was not compromised in 21 or the one before it in 19 through, through a different report. Uh, do you see a purpose for something that goes beyond that? Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, consideration needs to be given to doing, to doing something else. And I know I've been out of the country, but I, I've been reading there's been a live debate among people that I know well, some of whom are advocating very strongly for a public inquiry some of whom are saying, you know, that a public inquiry actually will uh, will not do the trick. Uh, and the reasons they're, th those who are against the public inquiry are uh, saying that a public inquiry takes a long time to get started. It takes a long time before it'll be wrapped up. It'll be likely after the next election that something like that is, is uh, finalized and recommendations are out. And then it takes a number of years to implement recommendations and then of course there's the problem of how to deal with sensitive national security classified information that can't be uh, treated in a public way and would um, uh, reduce the ability of the public to understand what's going on. Now that's not a completely insurmountable problem. There have been other precedents in the past of bringing in um, sort of respected retired judges who have security clearances who could at least look at the, the documents even if they didn't fully uh, explain what they were. Um, so, you know, it's, it's an option that I think needs to be on the table, but I would also say that it's important to think through what is the scope of the public inquiry. I sense from what I'm hearing from you, and if I'm reading between the lines, you do think that there are other things the government could be doing, could be pursuing right now to combat the threat of interference. Yes, and I think it has to, and I don't think whatever happens with whether there's a public inquiry or not, it ought not to um, uh, take away from the sense of urgency that the government should have about continuing to work on this. I saw that you know the government is now looking at the possibility of a foreign influence registry, right. as the Americans and the Australians have done. And I also think, and there have been calls for this in both of these reports, to do a review of the CSIS Act, which with some amendments, but it dates from 1984, to ensure that the mechanisms are in place to deal with an evolving set of threats. Mm -hmm. If I could uh, leave our, our conversation on this, is it fair to say you don't think your report is the final word on this? The final word? No. I mean, I think my report is dealing with an aspect of this. It's dealing with the protocol. And if you look at the recommendations in my report. I make 16 recommendations that deal with 
everything from better communications, earlier communications, to improvements to uh, the composition of the panel, the preparedness of the panel, its ability to work with civil society actors, um, better relations with political parties. Okay, thank yeah. you very much, Mr. Rosenberg. Pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. So let's get some perspective on what exactly the federal government is prepared to do. With me now, Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Dominic LeBlanc. Hi, Minister. Good to see you as always. Thanks for making the time. Hi, good morning, Vashi. Uh, I know we've spoken all last week, and, and all, the Prime Minister has spoken to the issue as well, the question of whether or not to hold a public inquiry into the issue of uh, foreign interference. I actually just spoke with Morris Rosenberg, who authored the report that your government has pointed to this week, does conclude that there was, uh, you know, the, the, the integrity of the election in 2021 was not compromised. However, he does say, based on the allegations that have come forth through media since he concluded that report, that he does think an inquiry is an option that needs to be on the table. Why has your government ruled it out? But, Vashi, we've, uh, we've heard from experts last week, uh, senior officials, Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs, head of the security intelligence agencies. Uh, it's very difficult in the context of a public inquiry for these people to speak to specific uh, intelligence information. We think that Canadians deserve and understandably want to be reassured that these elections in 2019, 2021 have been free and democratic, that while foreign interference attempts are not new, and by the way, they existed before 2015 and the previous Conservative government did nothing about them, we've continued to strengthen measures we put in place and will continue to look at ways we can strengthen them and take the advice of officials and others. Um, we've been very transparent at parliamentary committees. There's a National Security and Intelligence Committee of parliamentarians from all political parties and senators as well that can receive this information. We think there are a number of very effective measures in place that are in fact working very well. And I do take that point. And I, and I think that, you know, I, I have really tried to make sure that I'm accurate in, in sort of encompassing the full suite of measures that your government has put in place, because it isn't nothing. And, and, I, and I think that's a fair point. You've put in place a panel. There is a special national security committee that examines all of this. There are mechanisms to flag if the integrity of an election is, is compromised. But at the same time, it's hard to ignore the fact that because of allegations that have come forth, there is a, a large section of the population, a, a majority of Canadians at this point, who feel that those allegations could potentially compromise our democracy. If you continue to say, don't worry, we got it, is that really adequate when faith in our democracy is at stake? So we, uh, we accept, obviously, uh, the importance of strengthening democratic institutions, of strengthening elections legislations, getting rid of loopholes, for example, that would allow foreign financing of elections, something that we changed that the Harper government had left open. So we have consistently taken measures to strengthen uh, elections legislation and protection. We'll continue to do that. But Vashi, it's not us saying that these measures are effective and have ensured the integrity of the electoral process. It's people like the National Security Advisor to the Prime Minister, the Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs, people who have a responsibility, nonpartisan responsibility, particularly during an election period, uh, to ensure that elections are free and fair and open and decided by Canadians. They're the ones saying 
that those measures are working. We understand that opposition MPs want to keep throwing stuff at the wall and see what sticks. I've been an opposition MP as well. It's not a difficult job. Uh, you can continue to say whatever you want and hope that in some way it damages the government. The, the danger here is that they're damaging, as you said, uh, the confidence the Canadians have in democratic institutions, something that we think all of us should work constructively on reinforcing, and that continues to be our focus as a government. But if the shoes were on the other foot and there were allegations that your party's candidates, 11 of them, for example, had been targeted to, to one degree or another by foreign interference, wouldn't you want the full scope of that examine? And again, it's not just the opposition. Mr. Rosenberg, who you gov your government appointed, says that his report is not the final word. Why is it so difficult for your government to accept that? But Vashi, we created a process that allowed security cleared representatives of other parties to be given access to exactly that kind of information. You spoke about uh, attempts at foreign interference in particular writings. We've made this information accessible in real time to representatives of all political parties. They've been briefed by these intelligence officials. Uh, we also heard from these experts responsible for intelligence services that a public inquiry, for example, is not going to allow them to share intelligence information that they may have picked up from allies or talk about specific investigations or pieces of intelligence. That's true, but there that are ways around up. that. There are, with respect, Minister, there are ways around that. A judge could be appointed, someone who has security clearance. The, I, I take your point, and Jody Thomas did say that, but there are ways around that. Sure, and one of the ways around it is the National Security Committee of Parliamentarians that we created in law which has a mandate to call uh, to testify before them in a secure way. So we think that would be a good first place to start. And we're encouraging them, as the Prime Minister has from the beginning, to take up this important work. Okay, Minister, I'm gonna leave it there. Thanks for your time as always. Welcome back. Relations with China are not only a political focal point here in Canada, also in the United States. Ever since that Chinese spy balloon was shot down last month, relations between the two superpowers have gotten worse. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is now warning China will face serious consequences if it sends lethal aid to Russia. As President Biden made very clear to President Xi, uh, going back to the very beginning of the Russian aggression, uh, were China to engage in material, lethal support for Russia's aggression, uh, or were to engage in the systematic evasion of sanctions uh, to help Russia, that would be a serious problem. Also this past week, FBI Director Christopher Wray spoke out about the origins of COVID-19 for the first time and pinpointed a lab leak in China. And the U.S. Congress is looking at a bill to ban Chinese-owned app TikTok right across the country. With me now to talk about all of that in an exclusive Canadian interview is former U.S. Secretary of Defense and CIA Director Leon Panetta. He's also the chairman of the Panetta Institute for Public Policy. Hi, Secretary Panetta. Good to have you with us. Good to be with you. Secretary, I know that all the way back in 2012, uh, you actually met with now uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping. Uh, and I wondered as you reflect back on that time and all that has changed in the interim, uh, including the, the increasingly adversarial nature of the relationship between the U.S. and China, if you think what held true then, that there were some areas the two countries could cooperate on, still holds true today? I'd like to hope so, because I think, uh, I think the relationship with China uh, depends, obviously, uh, on uh, making clear to them uh, the areas that we're concerned about, but at the same time, being able to develop a dialogue 
on areas where we can find agreement. Uh, you know, my my experience with President Xi uh, at that time was one of uh, of respect for one another. Uh, he was uh, he visited me at uh, at the Pentagon uh, in Washington. Uh, I had the opportunity to meet with him there. I had lunch with him, uh, and then uh, traveled to Beijing uh, and had a private meeting with him as well. Uh, and I always found him to be uh, someone who was very, very bright, uh, did not operate by talking points, uh, really wanted to engage in a conversation about the issues that he was concerned about. Uh, you know, we, we've come a ways from that time. Uh, obviously, I think China, like Russia, sensed weakness on the part of the United States and our allies uh, and has tried to take advantage of it. Uh, and that uh, has added to the tensions that uh, we see today. Um, but nevertheless, uh, I, I still think that there is an opportunity here. Uh, as long as we understand each other and understand the areas we disagree on, to try to at least have a dialogue, particularly with regards to issues uh, like trade and cyber and other areas where, frankly, we would benefit uh, by having some kind of joint policy. How plausible or possible do you think that is, Secretary, uh, despite the impression you had back in 2012, given the kind of tone and tenor and, and, and some of the things that, that the president has done over his time, his sort of tightening grip on power uh, that many characterize, uh, you know, rightly so, as an authoritarian regime at this point? Well, look, there, there's no question that it's an authoritarian regime. It's a communist regime. Uh, and uh, she himself has basically said that uh, that the goal is to try to replace the United States as a world leader. Uh, and so it's obvious that, uh, you know, he, he has set uh, some goals that, uh, that can make it difficult. Uh, to try to create uh, a relationship of uh, mutual respect. Uh, and yet, you know, even though I know we've had tensions with the, uh, with the balloons and surveillance, and we've had tensions now on uh, Ukraine, uh, I really think that ultimately she understands that uh, the worst thing that can happen here is for China to get into the middle of the war uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and then suffer the sanctions that could impact on his economy and hurt uh, China and hurt its economy. So I, I suspect that uh, she is, is himself uh, looking for an opportunity to try to open a line of communication. So I hope that President Biden uh, can soon make a phone call uh, with President Xi uh, and that ultimately uh, Secretary Blinken uh, can uh, again schedule a visit to Beijing. Uh, that that would, I think, be encouraging to the world if we could get back to a more normal relationship rather than a relationship of tension and conflict. Do you think that, and, I, and I'll preface this by saying, uh, much of Canada right now is focused on headlines about Chinese interference, alleged Chinese interference in our elections. There is a very high level of public cognizance right now and awareness about the adversarial nature of the relationship between China and the West. 
Uh, I take your point about President Xi, you know, l perhaps looking for an off-ramp, but, but uh, when you talk about maybe normalizing uh, relations in the future, uh, do you, I guess, have a sense or are, would you be understanding of a public that is uncomfortable with that at this point? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm concerned about that. Uh, you know, I have to tell you from a political point of view here in the United States, uh, both parties uh, are now very hawkish mm -hmm. uh, on China. Uh, and, uh, you know, we now have a committee in the Congress, a, a, a committee in the House side that uh, whose principal focus is on China. Uh, and, uh, you know, everybody is very concerned about uh, the relationship. It's not, it's not unjustified. I mean, I, if there's anything I learned is that uh, China, China's first concern is China. Uh, and uh, if, uh, if China were to engage in an adversarial relationship with the rest of the world, it would hurt China. And it's, it would certainly hurt their economy and it would hurt their goals of trying to expand uh, their economy and their influence. So I think bottom line here is that the United States, I think it's true for Canada, I think it's true for other countries that deal with China, have to deal with China from a position of strength. Just before I let you go, Secretary, I, I know you mentioned it wouldn't make sense, though, in, in that context that you just lay out, that President Xi lead or, or uh, prompt a relationship that is more adversarial or do things to, to, to increase the adversarial nature of it. And yet he has, as recently as you know, last month with, with that spy balloon. So uh, it, again, I, I, I press, and, and, I, and I certainly understand the standpoint that, that you're putting forth, but I do sense that there would be a large amount of discomfort among people who watched that balloon get shot down on that Saturday, right, above the Carolinas, at the prospect of even saying things could be normal. Well, look, I, I, I've been through these kinds of approaches uh, a number of times, and it takes time. It takes mm -hmm. time. Uh, obviously, what happened with the balloon did not help. Uh, the fact that they were attempting surveillance uh, certainly didn't. Uh, it did not sit well with the United States, didn't sit well with Canada. And I think the, the American people, people of Canada, know that ultimately you have to be tough about the relationship and recognize the problems that we are concerned about with China. At the same time, it's also smart to open up areas of dialogue to see whether or not we can achieve some consensus. Uh, I, I think it would be very dangerous if we had a world in which, uh, you know, the democracies of the world are constantly confronting the autocracies of the world, because ultimately, I think that can lead to worldwide conflict. I don't, I don't, I don't think China wants that, and I don't think we want that. Okay, Secretary Panetta, I'm out of time. I thank you very much for your time today. Thanks. Good to be with you. When we come back, stepping down. BC's first and only First Nations cabinet minister is resigning after referring to the legislature in that province as a, quote, torture chamber. Melanie Mark will be here next to talk about her experience after a very quick break. Stay right there. It's also a fact that institutions fundamentally resist change. They're allergic to do, the thing, to do things differently, particularly colonial institutions like this Legislative Assembly and government at large. There is a lot that I'm proud of, but this journey has been challenging and has come at a significant personal toll. This place felt like a torture chamber.
I will not miss the character assassination. That's BC MLA Melanie Mark, who announced she's stepping down in a blistering speech about her political experience as an Indigenous woman. Mark was first elected in 2016 and became the first First Nations woman to be elected to the BC Legislature and remains the only First Nations woman to serve in Cabinet there. Her resignation will take effect at the end of this month. Melanie Mark is here now. Hi, Miss Mark. Good to meet you and good to have you on our program today. Hi, good to meet you too. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, I was listening to one, uh, an interview you gave after you made the decision, after you announced your decision to leave the legislature, and you described the kind of feeling you had thereafter as cathartic. And, and I wanted to start off by asking you why you think it felt that way. Oh, one of my friends descri described it as like heavy labor. Um, my, my first daughter was a 24-hour labor and, uh, you know, she was the best thing in my life. Um, it was one of the best things that I ever did in my life was be an MLA and become a minister. And it was really hard to uh, share those words in the chamber and, and say goodbye uh, to that part of my life. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it was a very emotional day, but also a very liberating day and a day that um, has made a lot of people proud in the province and, and for my family, my girls are particularly very, very happy that I made this decision. Oh, I, I can understand that. Um, when you call it liberating, why, why, do you, why would you use that word? Well, I, I always saw myself as a, an advocate. Uh, I wanted to disrupt the status quo. I wanted to make change. I wanted to fight. I wanted to use my big mouth for justice, economic justice, social justice, environmental justice. And, and I did that in many ways. But the work is also, um, demands of us to be uh, very calculated in, in the things that we say. Uh, people are very sensitive to every word that uh, politicians make, not just myself. And, uh, you know, people might see that as, as the idea of being politically correct. Um, I was always told by elders to not use the words to be honest, um, because we should always be honest. And um, I, I think just in terms of integrity, that you know, the liberation for me was I needed to let go. I've been a public servant for 27 years, and I needed to step away from some of the restraints that goes with being in public office. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that because we, we cover politics across the country on this show, and I think there are a lot of people watching today who could, um, I think, benefit from, from hearing about your perspective. My friend and colleague, Nigan Sinclair, when you announced your decision, put out a tweet, and part of that tweet said, let her story be evidence of what it's really like for Indigenous voices in the legislative spaces of Canadian politics. What could you convey today about what it really was like? Well, I think I think some people um, are really drawn to this idea that it was all bad. Um, question period is one aspect of the work. MLAs and ministers work 18-hour days. We work really hard in our constituency offices on behalf of, in my case, 55,000 people. As a minister, I was representative of the Crown for the province. They sat on three cabinet committees. What people see, though, is the th theatrics of question period. They don't see the, the, the work that goes into being an elected official. So you can imagine what we're exposed to in those 18-hour days on social media channels, in our offices. Uh, not everyone is always kind. Um, we receive a lot of very, very negative correspondences um, in all aspects, whether it's walking down the street, whether it's in our office in person. And so I really don't want to um, just focus on the negative. Those are aspects of it. 
but there's also a lot of great joy, people high-fiving and thanking us for the work that we do. Um, so when I say difficult, that's a difficult uh, working condition to go into every day, where one minute you're being told you're the hero and the next minute you're being told you're a total loser. So you have to have a lot of um, faith in yourself. And that's why I talk about integrity to know your truth. And I think for Indigenous people, we know the truth. I really wanted to make a point on this show, you know, what guides me is the truth and reconciliation's calls to action. This is a roadmap that we as Canadians need to be using. And it's very clear what the truth is of what's happened to people like my grandparents and where we need to go. And that's not Melanie Mark and all the natives in this country. It's not my job to fix what happened to our people. It's, it's a, a upon Canadians to embrace the calls to action. And I think we're doing that. And I'm very optimistic that we are going to see a brighter future um, in Canada by telling the truth and working on reconciliation and bringing into action the 94 calls to action. And I certainly take your point that, that there's a mix of, of good and bad. And when you, I guess, uh, you know, what, what's, what prompted a lot of headlines was when you said it could be at times a torture chamber. And, and I, I guess what I wanted to figure out was, are there ways in which things are structured that you know, increase the odds of uh, a very important, a very rather writ large, very important indigenous voices being represented in, in those structures? Like, is there something about the way that it's designed now that serves as an impediment and obviously to the detriment of, of, of society and, and the country as a whole? Well, let's be, Let's talk facts. I mean, the institutions were built by white men and back in the day, their wives stayed at home and look, looked after the children. And back in the day, a whole bunch of people didn't have rights under the constitution. They didn't have a chance to vote. My grandparents couldn't vote till the 60s. So the institution was built by those people and institutions don't change. You can't move a ship. A Navy ship doesn't just turn uh, easily. And, and that glacial space, that, sorry, the glacial pace that, that the institution didn't change is why I use the word very calculatedly. These institutions are allergic to change. And I think we need to embrace the 21st century and bring things into being more progressive as a workplace. It's a, it's a workplace. Elected officials go there to do business. They go there to do work. They go there to create public policy and, and laws. and and when I describe it as being dysfunctional, it's because there, there's such a restraint. People are holding on to conventions that were made 20, 40, 60 years ago. And so I really was deliberate in saying that this is not a partisan issue. It's the institution itself, the precinct, that needs to change the way it does business as a workplace. And then, you know, in terms of caucus, our caucus has done a lot of great things that I know we don't have enough time to talk about, but childcare and using virtual tools so that we can participate in the chambers uh, on the, in our constituencies and be closer to our families. Those are progressive ways to make change, but those changes didn't come easy. It came with advocacy. And I just, in my, in, in, I hope uh, that if my daughters ever decide to run to be an MLA, in the future, that those working conditions are going to be better. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. Miss Mark, thank you so much for sharing some of your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Coming up, we'll turn back to the politics of foreign interference. Does the pressure on the Prime Minister to call a public inquiry stick, or is he right to resist it? The Sunday strategy session with Kathleen Monk, Corey Tonight, and Scott Reed is next. Canadians need to know 
that our institutions hold and Canadians uh, need to be reassured that they will continue to hold uh, into the future. Despite national security and elections officials testifying that both the 2019 and 2021 elections were fair and legitimate, Canadians are worried. A new poll from Nano's Research says most Canadians are concerned about Chinese interference, with 7 in 10 of them surveyed viewing it as a major threat to our democracy. Is this a losing political battle for the federal government? Our Sunday strategy session is here. Kathleen Monk is a former NDP strategist and director of communications to the late Jack Layton. Corey Tanike was Ontario Premier Doug Ford's campaign manager and former director of communications for Prime Minister Stephen Harper. And Scott Reed is a CTV News political analyst and former communications director to Prime Minister Paul Martin. Hi, everybody. Good to hey see there. you today. Uh, Scott, yeah. I'm, I'm going to start with you. Uh, before we look ahead to whether or not politically this, this issue sticks around, I, I wanted to start off and just get your reflections on how you think the Fed's handled the issue so far. Inconsistently, and that inconsistency has been a problem. I mean, look, before the federal government can expect people to feel sure that our elections are secure, before they can expect people to regard these leaks uh, suspiciously or to regard opposition attacks as overtly and unfairly partisan, before they can expect people to believe and focus on any of those things, the government has to persuasively and consistently signal that it's taking this issue seriously. Mm -hmm. And that probably means inviting some elevated level of scrutiny and examination. It's had one report, it released it this week, but I think that there are demands and real reasons that people are gonna want other levels of reassurance. If I was the government, I'd be looking to provide people with that so that I could get on to those other aspects of the discussion and I could remove question marks about my own efficacy and focus on that matter. It is, Corey, a little bit uh, perplexing that the government hasn't so far said, and I will say, like, the Prime Minister has evolved in his response. He's acknowledging now very clearly, like, people's concerns are real. But there's been no corresponding, like, okay, we'll, we'll go a step above, you know, we'll, we'll do mm -hmm. something else to allay those concerns. Well, I think he's in a bit of a bind in that, you know, things like a public inquiry are probably going to ultimately be quite, you know, unsatisfying to the public and that uh, a lot of intelligence information will never be allowed to be disclosed publicly, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I personally, I've been, you know, much more of an advocate of having Elections Canada actually do an investigation and go after more of the, you know, the, the tactical uh, things that, you know, are wrong. Like if you were, you know, uh, not a citizen or, yeah. uh, and you're giving a donation or voting in an election or these kinds of things, like there, there are laws against these and we've seen Elections Canada in the past actually go after uh, MPs and, and uh, party organizers on things like this. I think of Dean Del Mastro, for instance, right. who you know, walked off uh, with great uh, grandeur and leg irons, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> uh, you know, th there are mechanisms available to the government to actually do that. I think there's another set that are related to uh, diplomacy, uh, things like canceling visas of people involved. You know, if you're a student who's been bussed in to, to vote illegally, mm -hmm. yeah, go home. Uh, if you're somebody working at an embassy, uh, you know, if we think of, you know, back to the Cold War, the demarching of uh, uh, and removal of, uh, of uh, diplomatic staff who were involved in espionage was a fairly routine uh, affair. And, you know, why is that not happened in this case? Yeah, it is, a, it is a good point, Kathleen, that there is a host of things, even a foreign agent's registry, for example, that they have started or, or mm -hmm. plan to start consultations on. Like you could really go full steam ahead on, on something like that. 
Do, do you think, though, it's um, it, it, politically it, that will work to kind of quell the critics at this point? Because it may have two weeks ago, but does yeah. it now? Well, that's the rule, right? When there's a problem that comes out like this, you need to cauterize it immediately. And the Liberals didn't, as, as Scott said off the top. Their, their ability to deal with this has been inconsistent. They have lost completely the ability to say, hey, trust us on this one. I don't think the public buys that, and certainly the opposition isn't buying that right now. The problem really is that there's bits and pieces and reports that are out, but not all of the information. And we can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. So as a result, I think it's probably better for a full public airing. And the key questions that we need the Prime Minister to answer are what did he do with the information uh, that he was briefed on? Did he elevate it to Elections Canada for further investigation? We're not clear on that right now, and I think that has to be done immediately. And it's interesting because the committee to which the Prime Minister and others in his government keep referring to, okay, they, they've got to do their work, they're investigating this. We watched that unfold last week, Scott, and there were some answers, but very few, because mm. of the reason that Corey points out. They're, they're not at liberty in that forum to disclose national security secrets or even... Uh, kind of a higher uh, level of transparency. So, so how do we get those answers and are they necessary politically? I think they are necessary politically and I don't think they're impossible to get. I think, you know, there are mechanisms that can be created if they don't exist already. And, um, you know, the fundamental problem right now is the government does not have control over this. You know, you've yeah. got wild media reports, some of which are more credible than others, but you know, it's, it's causing suspicion over individual members of parliament. But nevertheless, let's get a, a wise person's counsel that, you know, we get a panel of wise persons who, you know, is politically diverse, all of that sort of thing. But they have uh, security and intelligence background so they can review material. They won't be able to disclose it publicly. A public inquiry won't work for the reasons Corey said. But have a panel of that kind. Review the report that's been tabled already. Look at other issues and then report out and say, we are not in a position to disclose confidential information, but we can tell you the broad arc of what's happened here. This is what's been good. This is what's been less good. This is what is of concern. And in that mechanism, and in, through that mechanism, provide the public with some higher level of reassurance and regain control over this situation. Do you think, Corey, it is too late to gain, regain control, just given the, the number of times that the Prime Minister so far has insisted to, to, to repeated questions that the current mechanisms available to them to investigate this issue and to deal with it are okay or are, are enough? Is it too late or, or is there still runway? Well, look, it's too late to have this just, you know, go away in a, a smooth manner. Like, I, I think there have been too many errors along the road to, to have this not be an issue. But there are ways to still make it better. And, and I, uh, like, I'll agree with Scott that, you know, there needs to be some higher level of transparency. And, you know, there are a variety of ways that the government can show that they're taking this seriously uh, and, uh, and, uh, and ways that they can provide uh, higher levels of reassurance than what they've done so far. Uh, but, you know, the, the, you know the, the option du jour being a public inquiry, I just don't think that that in and of itself is going to be very satisfying at the end of the day. And, uh, you know, I think you have to fight fire with fire on this a little bit. Kathleen, last word to you. The past two weeks where this story has been so dominant mm -hmm. has been 
otherwise kind of a, a slow uh, news weeks. Next week, there are grocery store CEOs coming before mm -hmm. a committee on an issue I know a lot of Canadians care about. There is an interest rate announcement scheduled, another issue mm -hmm. a lot of Canadians care about. Does this, do you think, stay as dominant? Well, I think that the opposition, specifically the Conservative opposition, are going to want to continue to weaponize some of these pieces of information and, the, and this, the leaks that have been coming out in the media. The, the, the problem is, I think, you know, you really, you have all that information out there but not the whole picture and and so you're going to see you know the conservatives push on that when the house comes back in the in question period you're going to see the new democrats push on privatization of health care and the high profits of grocery store ceos uh growing pain that canadians are feeling uh in terms of affordability um but i don't think that the conservatives are going to drop this and because they are laying these dispersions not necessarily about the election outcome they've been very clear on that yeah, but on the election process and that does lead to you know escalate this climate of anxiety that Canadians are having about not just our election process but about the fear of foreign interference. Oh yeah, the polls show it. 7 in 10 Canadians say Chinese government interferences, this is according to Nanos, just came out in our 2021 election, is a major threat to our yeah. democracy. Only 7 in 10? For the other three. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. exactly. I don't know. Okay, I gotta that leave. tells you this isn't just about politics. No, like but it's true. If you're the yeah. Prime Minister of the country, you gotta act to address that, uh, that those doubts. Yeah, there's a high level of public awareness on this one for sure. I'm gonna leave it there. Thanks so much to our Sunday strategy session. Kathleen Monk, Corey Tonight, and Scott Reed. After the break, will there be a pause on interest rate hikes? That's among the three things I'm watching for this week, and they're all next. Don't go anywhere. As usual, there are three things that I'm watching for this week. First off, there's going to be a ton of attention on the Bank of Canada Wednesday. The central bank is set to announce its next interest rate decision. The governor has signaled that there will be a pause on those hikes, so I'll be looking to see if that comes to fruition. Also happening Wednesday, big CEOs of the top grocery store chains will be here on Parliament Hill. That includes Galen Weston of Loblaw. They're going to be testifying before a House committee to answer questions about the profits that they're making in this inflationary environment. And then on Friday, justice ministers from across this country are going to be here in the capital city to talk about bail reform. You'll know from our coverage, provinces have really been urging the federal government to make some changes to prevent accuse people out on bail from committing more crimes. We'll see how that meeting goes and what it produces. That does do it though for us this week. Thank you so much for watching. I'm Vashi Capellos. I'll see you tomorrow on Power Play. I hope you have a great day.